0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the continuation of our podcast series here at Workbench. My name is Boss, Singh, and I'm the president and founder of Workbench. And today we have Ben Taft from Mira. Um, say hi, Ben. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, we're so happy to have you on today. It's honestly just so humbling to, to, have, to, uh, to have the opportunity to speak to you. Um, you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Totally.
1: Um, you know, I'll, I'll start from... Um, I'm happy to start from the top. Um, I grew up uh, in the Bay Area, um, in the Palo Alto kind of neighborhood, and uh, my parents are uh, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Uh, My mom's a classical pianist, and my dad's always been in tech. Um, From a young age, I was really entrepreneurial, so I started my first business when I was probably 11, uh, selling t-shirts, and then I was selling iPhones, and then I, in high school, started a music website that I sold at the end of high school, which got me a ticket in for the first class of the Ivy Young program at USC, which was Dr. Dre and Jimmy Ivy school um, for innovation there. And um, spent a lot of time, you know, studying kind of future technology platforms and got especially intrigued with AR and VR. Um, and before my co-founders and I started our company Mira, um, you know, we were, you know, building the first experiences for the Sony PlayStation VR console. We were uh, doing some some business development work for some of the early industrial AR players, just getting kind of our feet wet in the industry. And, um, you know, we, we definitely agreed that, um, you know, VR would be kind of the future of entertainment and, and social experiences. And AR would simply just be the way we're going to compute in the future. So we, we knew we had to work on it. Um, and we tried to kind of get involved. Um, but the only way to do it at the time was to purchase a super expensive developer kit. Uh, Microsoft made one at the time for $5,000. Um, very complex piece of hardware. Uh, didn't come with any software. Very out of reach for developers. And businesses couldn't quite really deploy it at scale because uh, it was too costly and too complicated. Um, so instead of chipping in the money to buy one, we decided to try to build one ourselves. Uh, and the way we did that was we took our iPhone and we used that as the brains of the, of the device. And we 3D printed... Um, Kind of a case to hold it to your forehead and we couldn't afford the custom lenses or the custom optics for it so we did all the math and then found these ten dollar plastic fishbowls on amazon that actually matched that radius of curvature perfectly so we'd order these f- plastic fishbowls on amazon we cut these lenses out of them we hot glue them of these 3d prints and lo and behold we built the five dollar augmented reality headset and with that prototype um we raised our first seed round uh, wow. I guess we, people thought we were crazy enough to to do it, and we raised that round back in 2017 <laughs> when we were juniors in the program. That came from Sequoia founder Frank Greylock and some great angels like Mark Benioff, Jimmy Ivine, Will I am, uh, and some others. Um, I'll pause there. Um, you know that's I mean, how we going. started out. And okay, cool. Um, from <laughs> that point on, <laughs> that, yeah. So from from that point on, we um, we brought that uh, developer kit to market. So we, you know it wasn't a fishbowl prototype anymore. We actually manufactured a product and we brought it to market. It was a $99 developer kit, which was the, you know, most cost effective uh, piece of hardware on the market by a factor of 30 or 50. I mean, you couldn't, you could buy 50 of our headsets for the price of one of those Microsoft headsets. Um, And it was a great, you know, user friendly experience. And at first it was catered toward developers. Um, You know, we thought people would build games and, you know, this, that, and the other. And, you know, a lot of our customers were kind of independent developers. A lot of them were, even big tech companies like, um, you know, Snapchat and, and Apple, and they were buying our our kits to use internally for whatever sort of top secret R and D they were doing. Um, so, uh, you know, those a lot of our customers were kind of coming from the developer side, but a lot of them were also coming from the industrial side and the defense side. And you know, we we started taking a look at that because the use cases they had were so ripe, and it was so clear why they needed. Um, you know our platform today, because when you give, you know, um, you know, frontline operator who's working in a factory this headset, imagine they can put on the headset and get work instructions overlaid over what they're looking at, and they become an expert at what they're doing instantly, essentially eliminating the need for training, right? Or maybe they want to actually just show what they're seeing from their point of view to someone who's an expert remotely, and that person, as though they were there, could maybe. Draw on a particular valve that they're looking at, or show them a diagram, basically provide over-the-shoulder guidance from remotely anywhere in real time. Right. So those were the type of use cases they were hoping to 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 launch today. Um, so we we committed our second version product to focusing on those people and and that sort of you know group of of uh, the workforce that's really overlooked. Eighty um, percent of the workforce. Uh, doesn't work behind a the desk. They're more hands-on. They're climbing telephone poles. or working in factories. Um, but about 1% of new software is, is built for, the, for, for that kind of workforce. So huge discrepancy there. Um, wow. Yeah. So in addition to the hardware that we wanted to build for them, you know, we made it more ruggedized. We made it dustproof and waterproof and made it work with hard hats and safety glasses, and it worked inside or outside. Uh, we kind of did all the – we beefed up the device – itself. Um, but in addition to that, we built a software platform too. Um, a really easy out-of-box tool set that you know, people can build checklists or workflows or place those kind of see what I see video calls out of the box so that you're not having to you know, build custom apps and custom content and have to be all complex. No, you just buy our device, very cost-effective. You pop your iPhone in that you already have, that your company's already issued you, And you use our tool set completely out of the box without having to code to just start getting some of the value that I was talking about earlier in training and work instructions and and, uh, support. Um, And so we're making a huge impact for the customers today. Um, And especially in light of something like COVID-19, where now you have all these travel restrictions and you have all these quarantined bits of expertise. We're basically able to completely unquarantine all that and make sure that people can actually distribute that knowledge across the workforce effectively. So that's kind of how we went from, you know, that first fishbowl prototype just about two or three years ago, um, you know, partnering with some of those great venture capital firms early on and, and finding a really great product market fit, uh, which is where we're focused today.
0: Right. And you've done so much. You've, you've established that product product solution mindset right you're literally the epitome of an entrepreneur at this stage right what what in your early life really morphed you to be to have this mindset right some people some entrepreneurs that go to college at USC especially some are confused like I don't know what I should be doing how do I start right how what is your advice to them like what influenced you to think today yeah that's a good question um
1: it, it's 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 fairly inherent to me, probably because of the way I was raised. I, I think it's like my parents, you know, they kind of sacrificed everything and came to America for the American dream. Right. Right. And right. they they sacrificed a lot to surround me with, you know, tech and with some incredible people um, in the VC community and the tech community. And and they weren't necessarily part of that themselves, but they wanted me to be exposed to that. Um, right. And you know, it also came with not having allowance and things like that. So having to kind of um, figure it out on my own and become entrepreneurial to give myself any sort of pocket money when I was young and, and just that sort of compounded and developed over time um, and became a bit more sophisticated as I got older, I I guess.
0: Yeah, I I can definitely relate to that. My, my family, we also moved here from India and my dad was a taxi driver. Then he worked at a gas station and now he owns a, a beer retail store, right? And Incredible. I definitely, I definitely established my entrepreneurship spirit from that. Just watching him do what he does. Right. Um, definitely. There's
1: definitely something inherent to the kind of immigrant mindset of being a first generation um, or even an immigrant yourself. Right. I, I think it's there's definitely some, some kind of commonality there, which, which I think is part of it, but for advice for someone, you know, back to your question, like if you don't have to be an immigrant to be entrepreneurial, right? right. Um, but, but I think the best thing I've learned is that you, it's impossible to teach it in a classroom. Yeah. Um, You really have to just do it. You just have to start. And you have to just make so many mistakes. I make mistakes every day, every single day. (laughs) Um, But eventually, you know, you keep failing, you keep making mistakes, and eventually you'll learn enough to have some successes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think people are pretty scared of failure inherently. I think people are pretty scared of judgment Um, inherently. Um, But if you can put that aside, and if you can reframe your perspective on your, on your failure or the judgment as these are stepping stones to get me further and faster and, and be bigger and better, um, I think that's a good first step. And that just lets you eliminate the fear
0: and just dive in and at all costs, right? So how, how, can, how can people accept shame and judgment for an outcome of um, more growth? How, how, how does someone do that? That's a,
1: that's a good question. Um,
0: I, I I I think it's a choice, right? Like,
1: um, you have the ability, what people sometimes realize is you have the choice. It's your choice how to react to something. Yeah. Right. right. Like you can't control what other people do or think or say, but you can control how you choose to react. Right. Yeah. And And that's a powerful tool. So you know, if you receive judgment or somebody says, you know, somebody makes fun of what you're trying to do, um, you know, it's it's tough to not react to that uh, and to let your defense or your emotions say, well, well, screw you. Like, you know, but if you can put that aside and you can maintain um, level headedness and keep an eye on the perspective that I was mentioning earlier, which is, I'm going to fail, I'm going to be judged, but eventually it's going to work out. Once you get past that, and once you get to that tipping point, all the tables turn, and the people that were judgmental become probably more envious, and you just have to kind of work through that curve until that inflection point, and actually call that graph the curve of shit. You have to take enough shit, and at a certain point, it'll inflect when the same people that were giving you shit before are like, wow, okay, they made it to a certain point that I can't even really hate on anymore. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And now we've been throwing this word of entrepreneur back and forth throughout this conversation, right? So what is the difference between between an entrepreneur and a businessman in your opinion? That's a good question. I think I can tell I you my opinion an, first. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Yeah. So in my opinion, an entrepreneur is, or a businessman is a subset of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur can always be a businessman, but a businessman cannot always be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are the ones that take the risk, the ones that start companies, the ones that set the trends. Um, yeah, that's what I think. What do you think?
1: I, I definitely agree with your point. And and to add on to it, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a concept that was coined by Peter Thiel, who started PayPal, Palantir, Founders Fund, that a lot of people listening might be familiar with, called zero to one. Yep. And the whole concept is entrepreneurs and true innovators create something new that's never. It just hasn't existed before. It's just like they just manifest something like out of thin air. And it's it's (laughs) what advances society. Those are the types of things that have exponential impact on society. And that's going from zero to one. And then the process of going from one to N is taking that thing that already exists already in one state, right? And then globalizing it or selling it harder or scaling it or operationalizing it. And I think entrepreneurs are really good at going from zero to one. And I think businessmen are really, or business people are really uh, good at going from one to N. So I think that business people inherently are more operational systems thinkers, know how to optimize profit margins and scale revenue and, and manage a management team. And entrepreneurs are the scrappy ones to go from zero to one. But I think there are probably rare instances or you have an entrepreneur who's also an incredible business person, and if right. you can take your company from zero to one and one to n, then those are the people that end up who are the founder CEO and they're still at the helm of the company twenty years later. And those are people like Mark Benioff. Those are people like Drew Houston. Um, those are people like um, like the founder of Twenty uh, Three and Me. Right. Like those are the types of entrepreneurs um, that are also incredible business people.
0: Right. Right. Hmm. So in this whole, this whole conversation about entrepreneurship, right, and business, what is something that you think needs to be changed tomorrow? Like if, if you have the ability to change something in business, something for something related to resources, something, just anything about creating a venture, right? What, what would you change? I'm not sure I understand your question. Would you rephrase it for me? Like if you, if, if tomorrow... Right, you could change how capital is shifted, how how students are taught about ventures, how, um, I don't know, what what business school teaches you. What would you change, if anything? I would, um,
1: so basically, how would I try to kind of change the fundamental education system around entrepreneurship to be more inherent to action-breeding entrepreneurs? Is that the question you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Um i Again, I think it's something that's nearly impossible to teach in a classroom, so right. I think the best thing to do is to create um more of a almost like an incubator or an environment where you can actually you know take a uh you know take a model where you're you're getting students in, in groups or you know having helping them form teams and you know kind of like the stuff that like Lava lab is doing for instance right. I think that's a good model where you're actually giving people an environment and a safe environment to experiment and just start building and, and learning and trying and pitching.
0: Um,
1: that that is, a, is a good thing. And I think that's the quickest way to learn. So if we can kind of start blending that model more into the classroom, um, I think that we'll start to see um, students learning what they are currently only really able to learn out on their own in, in the quote real world they're able to start that
0: learning curve sooner, which will set them up better for success. Right. A more hands on deck approach. And do you think, um, you think being exposed to entrepreneurship in your, in your young age, that helped you, you kind of had the, you kind of had the upper hand on everyone else. Um, I would say, I would
1: say, yeah, I mean, Mira's probably the 30th business I've tried to start in my lifetime. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and that's, that's no exaggeration. I've done a lot of little businesses here and there. And obviously, a lot of them were very, very small scale. But um, I, I don't think that I would have um, been in a position to at least even get me off the ground. Um, as much as we did, if I didn't have that sort of grit developed, or just that sort of nature in me. Um, if it was my first go around, I probably would have made more mistakes or would have been more scared and would have been more scared to fail but i'd already failed so many times before it just didn't even matter and that sort of fearlessness definitely helps propel you i think so again i would definitely encourage people to start just just start and just
0: fail and just keep going <laughs> just don't stop right right that, that's and, what i would say so yeah and in, in our in our like college campus scene especially at usc there's that whole um the syndrome of the whole ageism concept right you're too young to do this. I'm not old. I don't have enough experience to accomplish what I want to do. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's BS. I think it's an excuse. I think that, um, I think there's a, so one of the partners at Sequoia, his name is Mike Fernell. Um, he has a really interesting quote. If you go to the Sequoia website and you look at his like profile or his bio, he has a really interesting quote um, and I'm going to butcher it uh, when I try to say it verbatim, but it's something like, (laughs) I like investing in in young founders because um, they don't know, you know, what's not yet possible, I guess. Like you grow, you you grow older and and the world kind of tells you that certain things just aren't possible or shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. And the younger you are, the less exposed you are to that. right? Right. So that level of like naivety almost when you're young, he thinks is an advantage. And I would totally agree with you. Hmm, That's interesting. I mean, of course you'll have to, you know, if you're young, you're inexperienced, your your job is going to be to find people that are experienced um, and are specialized to help realize your vision and your job becomes to empower them. And, and that's really what your, what your job becomes after you get your business off the ground. And, and that, you know, inherently compensates for the quote, inexperience uh, gap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's an important thing to remember. You're not gonna be the one you know, doing things yourself and you're not gonna be in every corner of your business. You're, you, know, you, you started it because you saw something and an opportunity that, that you knew the world just had to be different in some way. And if you can get people on board mm-hmm. with that vision, and you can show that to them, and you can agree on what that vision is, and you can agree on the goals, right? Your job is to just basically get out of their way and make sure the culture of your business and your company is strong and keeps people working together and collaborating really well and and the rest is up to the people that you delegate to it's not It's not your job, so of course, if you're the one doing everything you don't have the experience
0: to, but you're not going to be the one doing anything everything anyway so you know, right. what does it matter, right? Right. And we're young. We should be taking as many risks as we, as we can right now, right? A hundred percent. Every Every day you get older, it's, it becomes harder to take a risk.
1: You right. graduate college. Now you got to worry about, you know, rent and student loans and this and that. And then, you know, maybe you get into a relationship. You get married. Now you have kids and you've got to, people are depending on you more. And, and and every day, you know, you get closer to having more. It get It just becomes harder to take a risk, right? And so when you're young and you have this safety, especially if you're at a place like USC, where you just have access to just these incredible resources, these incredible people, and you know, you're, you're at a time where you can just take full advantage of that, and I'm not saying that you don't have any risks or any responsibilities, but I would argue that you have drastically less than you will 10 years from now, right? So take the risk and, and do all the failure and the learnings while you're in a position where you can still do
0: that. Right, definitely. Um, that's amazing. We all just need to go full steam ahead, <laughs> without a doubt, with no yeah. hesitation. Um, so Ben, you're at you're an invest you're a scout for Sequoia right now. How's that going?
1: It's going great. I have made a few investments, uh, mostly in actually uh, USC companies or USC alums. Um, so I'm I'm a big proponent um, of giving back to the community at, at USC and making sure that you know entrepreneurs succeed. Um it's going great. And, and it's a great program.
0: Sequoia spun up and and I'm enjoying it a lot. That's awesome. So what are your, um, what's your big vision with Mira? What's, what's the end goal?
1: I think that, I think that, um, I think the augmented reality is essentially it's going to be, there's going to be another paradigm shift that happens, right. Where we went from paper to, to kind of digital, you know, we went, we, we got computers spun up, right. And then we, and then we shifted to mobile, right? And, and AR and VR is definitely the next paradigm shift. And it's just a matter of, of, of when and how. Um, I think AR is going to serve an incredible, incredible purpose for humanity. Um, one that's often overlooked in the discussion of it is, is I, I think that in the same way that internet, let's even rewind before that. I think that, think about utilities, right? I like think about the world before there was power and water available to everybody, right? And think about how just that infrastructure just propelled humanity so much, and how much you know. Just think about Maslow's hierarchy, right? You've got you've got access to power and electricity and water, right? And and, and now you can now humanity's been propped up to be able to achieve more and think more and create more and what humans are uniquely capable of doing, and creating technology and art and doing that kind of thing, right? and And I think the next the next sort of infrastructure p- shift that happened was was the internet right Now everybody has access to all this information, and you know because humans don't have to memorize everything or you know look in books you, everyone just has so much information, and everyone can communicate with each other so instantaneously, but that's propped up another layer of of you know of Maslow's hierarchy essentially for humans right. And I, I think that the next, the next thing after that is going to be AI, right? When when you have this kind of automated intelligence tool that is smarter and faster and can process more, it will take the minutia away from humanity, and it'll allow people to not worry about getting from point A to point B, or when to restock their fridge, or how to get something like all all these things that we're currently still doing. All of that minutiae is going to be alleviated from humanity, and AI is going to enable that and I think AR ar's role augmented reality's role in that is to serve as the interface for AI Very right true. so when you 're yeah. walking down the street right and and you need to know where to go right or you know you hop into your autonomous vehicle and you know how do you communicate with it how do you see what it's seeing and understand what it's calculating on the road and Right. Or if you're a knowledge worker, right, and, and you need to assemble an aircraft wing, that you have no idea how, right? How can it tap into all of the data that exists in your, in your company's systems and just present to you the knowledge and all the things right over what you're seeing, right? So it's going to just serve as this kind of interface to AI, right? And that's how it's so fundamentally different from VR. And and I think that that is really the the what AI and AR together are going to do for humanity, and we're not going to we can't even conceptualize what it's going to do for us 50 years from now. But Mira's role in all that is to always provide the most intuitive and simple and affordable and accessible platform and technology and solutions to make sure that we can accelerate the adoption and the access to this technology. So it started with an iPhone powered headset and in 10 years that may look very, very different, but we're always going to keep access open and barriers low so that humanity can get to that place
0: faster. Right. So I wanna ask you a really weird question on the on the note of AI, right? And the whole like connection that you made uh, about the interconnectivity of AR and AI. So if, if we have AI controlling all, taking care of all the simple tasks that we do in our, in our day-to-day lives, where does that leave us as a human species if we don't have anything to do? Well, we can't, we can't imagine what that looks like, hey. right? I mean,
1: once you take care of that for humans, it opens up so much brain space, and we don't even know what the next advancement will be. Like, we, you and I, we can't sit here and think about or imagine like we, when the smartphone came out and it was like, okay, everyone has a GPS in their pocket. Who knew that you could just tap a button on your phone. A car will show up in 30 seconds and take you anywhere. And right. you can get off the plane in in Paris and do the same exact thing. Yeah. Right. Like no one could have even imagined that to be the case 10 years ago before, you know, right, we right, started right. 10 years ago. Like you can't even imagine that. Right. So, so it's nothing that we can even conceive of right now. Um, but it's going to really unlock something just more advanced
0: than we even can, can realize. Right. All right. So aside from these abstract questions, um, <laughs> what, what is something that you live by in your day-to-day life, um, being a CEO and being a founder? Interesting. Um, I'd say um, a, a principle I've adopted
1: uh, recently, uh, it's called Kaizen. Uh, the Japanese principle, um, it, it basically means um, small incremental changes that happen continuously eventually to one big change. Huh. It was popularized by um, manufacturing, auto manufacturing groups in the 50s, in the 60s. Yeah. Um, that Kaizen principle is actually what allowed Japanese automakers to sort of outperform and and compete with US automakers, right? um, because they basically empowered people on the front line to stop the assembly when there was an issue. And just having the people on the front line be able to make those small changes, they were actually able to to output at a much more efficient level over time. So I apply that principle in my life when I'm trying to build new habits. I apply it when I'm trying to um, make changes in the business or improve things. Um, everyone wants the change to happen instantly, right? Like if you want to build a routine where you wake up at five 30, you work out, you meditate and you read a book and you're currently not doing any of those things. And you wake up at 9am. You're sure as hell not going to wake up tomorrow and do all those things and continue to do that forever. Right. So you may as well try getting up at eight tomorrow and maybe reading one page of a book, right? <laughs> and maybe you get up at seven thirty. then after a week, and then you, do a 10 minute run. Right. And if you can just build slowly, and gradually, maybe in one or two or three months, you'll be at that point where you're waking up at five 30 and you're doing all three things. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that goes for your business too. Right. If you want to get your sales up or you want to make something more efficient or whatever, if you just pick a metric and you don't try to do everything overnight and just, you know, shock the company, but you make small changes eventually in a few weeks or a few months, you'll be exactly where you want it to be but you have right. to do it
0: gradually, but with urgency. So Kaizen is the principle and I live by it. I think that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard of that before. I've definitely heard of the concept before. I've never heard of anyone living by it. Well, glad I could share. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, that that conc- that's kind of wrapping up the podcast. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on. Ben, this has been an amazing talk. Um, you definitely have some really exciting ideas and i think you're going to be super successful with mira um is there anything else you'd like to say
1: Nope, just uh if you're listening to this just don't hesitate try to start something you're gonna fail and you're gonna be made fun of but if you just keep going and you keep improving eventually something will work yeah so don't hesitate